My apologies. <laughs> um, you can follow along as we read uh, from Luke chapter 15. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 32. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. 
Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we are continuing a series of messages that I began last week um, called What Jesus Believed. We're looking at the beliefs of Jesus of Nazareth as we can discern them from his life and teachings as the gospel writers have uh, um, made known to us. And the, the basic thesis or premise of the series is that while everybody, pretty much, pretty much everybody in the world, has some beliefs about Jesus, pretty much everybody thinks something about this person who walked the face of the earth and changed the course of history. Everyone has beliefs about Jesus. Some think he's, you know, the Lord. Some think he's God. Some think he was a prophet. Some think he was just an influential historical figure. Some people choose to believe in him, but very few really ever learn what it means to believe like Jesus. So everyone believes something about Jesus. Some people choose to believe in Jesus, but very few choose to believe like Jesus. And this is the narrow road that, uh, that I, I think he talks about. Um, and so the point, of course, as Christians is that as, as followers of Christ, the goal in, in, our, in our lives and our faith is to become more and more like Christ. That's what we're, we're after. And if we want to become like Jesus, it it starts with knowing what he believed, how he saw the world, how he understood God. Um, and, and therefore, then we can practice learning to believe like Jesus believed. And, uh, and though I'm coming from the Christian tradition, and most of us here are Christians, um, the teachings are really designed such that they could benefit anybody who would like to learn from Jesus about what Jesus thinks about the spiritual life. So whether you come from the Christian tradition or another tradition or no tradition at all, I hope that you'll find this helpful for your life's journey. To, uh, I, I think you'll benefit from knowing how did the most influential person who ever walked the face of the earth, how did he think about reality? Jesus of Nazareth, what did he believe? And then for the vast majority of the rest of us who already believe in Jesus, um, I hope that it'll deepen our knowledge of Jesus and, and, uh, and our knowledge of God's affection for, for us, um, such that we could grow in seeing the world the way that Jesus did. And it's not that uh, we don't know what Jesus believed. Um, it's just that most Christians haven't really taken the time to actually think about this question and to discern and delineate what Jesus believed. And so what we covered so far was last week was the paradigm of Jesus. It was the lens through which he saw everything else. We could, we could call it his controlling belief. It was the belief that shaped all 
all of the other beliefs that he had. And he had a phrase for it. It was called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I use those terms interchangeably because they're used in the gospels um, in the same vein. Mark prefers kingdom of God. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, but they essentially mean the same thing. And today that phrase doesn't really ring true for uh, many of us in North America because we were not so big on kings anymore. Um, in fact, we you know, got rid of a king in order to start our, our uh, way of government here in the United States. So Jesus might not have used the term kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Perhaps he would have used the term uh, the family of God or um, the economy of God or the government of God. That's kind of speculation to think about what he might have used. Um, but he might not have used that metaphor. The point is, what he did mean by it that we looked at last week are these two things, essentially these two primary things. The kingdom of God is at hand, therefore God is near, that he is, he is very, very close, he is at, God is at hand, and secondly, that God is accessible, like a river. You don't have to, you know, go all the way up to the temple and get in, uh, go through a bunch of hoops, the river is accessible. And John called people down to the river and God is accessible, has come to us in Jesus Christ. So we talked about the nearness of God, uh, the nearness of the spirit, that you don't have to go out of your way, but God is accessible along the way, wherever you are. The spirit of love is all around you, even inside you. Sometimes we uh, are swimming in it and we don't even realize it, if you remember that image from last week. And all the rest of the teachings of Jesus fall under this rubric known as the kingdom of God. In fact, most of his parables even start with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is, is like a farmer who goes out into the field, or like a wealthy man who leaves and goes on a trip, or it's like a great banquet. And so the kingdom was the matrix for all of the teachings of Jesus, and the key was that he believed in the nearness of God, this deep sway of love, um, that there's this presence and power that is pulling on every human being that emanates from God, coming toward all people everywhere all the time, and it's closer than the air that we breathe. And this then leads to the next question regarding the kingdom, which is, what is at the center what did Jesus believe was at the center of this kingdom? If, if the kingdom of God is at hand now in Jesus, and this is the reality and this invisible reality of God's love coming toward us, what's at the center of this reality, this kingdom? When you think about a kingdom, you'd naturally think that at the center of a kingdom would be a king, right? And certainly, uh, that's how a lot of people came to understand Jesus. Um, he started with the Magi coming from the east, bringing gifts for a king to recognize this baby as a king. Um, even Herod was sort of afraid about that, of course, as you remember. The followers of Jesus came to describe him um, and, and see him as king of the kingdom of heaven. The Romans even described him as king of the Jews. But this is not the language that Jesus himself used to describe what was at the center of this kingdom. Um, in Jesus' day, kings weren't really known for being benevolent. They weren't the warmest of figures. 
as I mentioned, King Herod was the king who was over Israel at the time, and he slaughtered an entire group of babies because he was threatened by Jesus. And so Herod didn't exactly, you know, emanate warmth from, from his being. You wouldn't want to sit around the fireplace and have a cup of tea with King Herod. Um, he wasn't the warmest person. Now, there were kings in the Old Testament who were good kings, and there were kings in the Old Testament who were bad kings. It's just that the image of a king was not an image of warmth. It was an image of power. And even though Jesus was the most powerful being, you, you presume, filled with the power of God, it's not what he wanted to lead with. So if you attended the parables class that we hosted um, back in the fall, you might remember that a parable is like a riddle. There's a problem, there's something to solve in it, and when you read a parable or you hear a parable, it, it, it creates a cognitive dissonance because it's not, it doesn't make sense. And it's meant to force you to dig deeper, to ask some questions, to probe a little bit in order to search for the truth of what is behind this riddle. And parables were Jesus' primary way of teaching about the mysteries of God and about the real presence of God's kingdom in our midst, this invisible reality that we can neither see nor touch. How do you talk about such a reality? Well, he did so using these parables, these stories, which is a very Jewish way of conveying truth. And the story that we're thinking about today, um, I actually preached on back in the fall. You might remember it, and I don't normally preach on the same text twice in one year, but it's such an important story in understanding what Jesus believed was at the center of this kingdom that he came to proclaim. And because the story is so familiar, we just heard it read so well from Bree a moment ago, um, I'm not going to rehash all of the uh, details of the story, but what I want to do is draw out a few things um, that might help us as we consider this story from the perspective of the crowd. And how might the crowd have heard this story that Jesus told about, these, uh, about these, this father and his two sons? You know, first of all, it was an oral culture. And the crowd would have been largely illiterate, um, mostly illiterate, if not completely illiterate. So they're very much used to an oral tradition. They're used to sitting around and hear, hearing stories. And they've probably heard stories like this one before. And so the parable begins in this very common, sort of familiar, unassuming way. There's this wealthy man, and he had two sons. And the crowd's thinking, oh, yeah, this is familiar. We know about family life. We know about a father, and, and we know about sibling life. I bet one of the sons is a good son, and one's the bad son, and the bad son is going to get what he deserves. That's where certainly he's going to go with this. And I can even imagine a father sitting in the crowd with his son, kind of elbowing him, saying, see, this is going to be a good lesson for you, kid. You better pay attention. Um, and so 
And so there's this father and two sons, and the one son comes to the father and says, Father, I want my inheritance now. And the crowd's going, see, exactly, this is the bad son, the one who wants his inheritance now. I know where this is going. This isn't going to turn out good for him. The elder son, he doesn't ask for this stuff, so he's clearly the good son. We already know who's good, who's bad, what's going to happen, where's this going, and they're on the edge of, the, edge of their seats. So the one takes the money and he leaves home um, and, uh, and when he does, this of course is terrible news for the crowd to leave home in a kinship culture is really, really bad news. And uh, not only does he go off to this distant country and uh, he goes where the goyim live, the outsiders, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, he goes off there and he squanders the whole inheritance that the father had given to him. And the crowd is going, I told you, I knew this was going to happen. I knew the guy would do that. The other son, the good son, he doesn't squander it. He's, uh, he's a saver and he's saving it for, and he's making a good plan, putting it away for the future. And so when the kid finally finds himself wound up in a pigsty, the worst possible place for a Jewish boy to end up, not only does he wind up there after his wild living experience, but he also is so desperate and hungry that he says he'll even eat what the pigs themselves were eating. And the crowd is thinking by now, that's exactly right. He, this guy's life is unraveling. If he's not dead by now, he's certainly dead to the community. Um, he's not coming back from this. And so we know by now that this son is the bad son, and he has reaped what he has sowed. And naturally, this would be the end of the story with a very, very clear moral. Good things come to those who wait Bad things come to those who demand things that are not theirs. Be like the good son. Wait patiently with the father. Don't be like the bad son and wander off and squander your inheritance. Otherwise, you're going to end up dead in a pigsty. Very clear moral, except for the fact that Jesus doesn't end the parable. Not so fast. Because then Jesus says, this kid came to his senses. And the crowd's going, he came to his senses. Who cares? It's too late. This, is, this kid's long gone. This story is over. I don't care he came to his senses. What does it matter? The story's not supposed to go any further than that. But nonetheless, Jesus keeps going. He talks about this kid who makes this plan of restitution. He's so desperate. He, he'll even go back and ask the father to work off everything that he lost. And so the kid starts heading back and he gets in, in view of home. And the father is on the porch and he can see the kid coming up towards him. And the father starts running down to this kid. And the crowd's going, yeah, that's right. Okay, this story's continuing. And certainly now the father's going to run down there and give him a real whooping. And, uh, and if he doesn't give him a real whooping, then, then, then the crowd, the community will get, they'll execute mob justice on this kid. I mean, this is so horrible. Uh, certainly this is where the justice and fairness will come. But it gets worse and worse when more and more love and grace and mercy and celebration is thrown all over this kid who returns home. And the father says, get the best robe, get my ring, get the fatted calf. That's actually reserved for the elder brother, by the way. 
and let's throw this grand week-long festival for the whole community and even the elder brother. And the father says, let's celebrate the return of my younger son because he was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And all this time, the good son has remained home, working in the field, putting in an irrigation system for the next year's harvest for the family. But this father runs to the bad son and celebrates him. The crowd is thinking he's throwing a party for this kid. And so now it seems to the crowd that the father's a bad father. What kind of a father is this? It's not very fair. In today's culture, we'd probably say that this father was codependent on his children because he's not even going to give any restitution or any punishment or anything for this wrong being. He just needs him back so much he's just going to be the enabler that he is, right? Okay, so I don't want to be like that father. No guilt, just love and acceptance, restoration to his family. Clearly, this father is an enabler. This isn't supposed to happen. What's going on here? Super confusing. And the crowd is thinking, so what happens then to the, to the elder brother? And now the camera lens kind of turns towards the elder brother, the good, the good one. And, uh, and he'd been working out in the fields this whole time. And he can hear the music and dancing going on in in the father's house and, and this party happening and someone tells him that, they've, that his brother has come home and he's throwing a party for him. And, uh, and, and yet no, there's no reward for his good deeds. So the one who has left the house has returned home. The one who remained home at, at, at the house the whole time never comes in. But notice how the father does the exact same thing for the elder son that he did for the younger son. He leaves his house and he goes out to where the elder son is. And he listens patiently with warmth to his son's grievances, even his accusations and his attitude of entitlement when he says, this son of yours, talking to his father like that. And yet he still invites him to join the party. It's as though the father has nothing but grace and mercy to offer his children, to all of his children. Because he says, son, you've been with me this whole time and everything I have is yours. But this brother of yours has come home and we've got to celebrate for that too. And then Jesus does this incredibly disturbing thing for the crowd, of course. He ends the parable. Imagine being there in this crowd. By now, the crowd has been totally turned upside down because they're now overwhelmed by this goodness, this grace of the Father. And the question remains, so does the good son come into the party or not? We thought it was a parable about the badness of the bad son, but really it leaves us pondering, was the goodness of the good son really all that good to begin with? So what, is, what can we discern from this that is, Jesus believes is at the center of his kingdom? Endless love and grace and mercy for all of his children, the righteous and the unrighteous. 
Pretty much every time I talk about this parable, I reference Henry Nouwen's book, Return of the Prodigal Son. Um, and I'm doing that again today. Many, many people think that, uh, that this is primarily a story about the younger son and his prodigality. Right? Prodigal means wastefully extravagant, and he was prodigious all the way to the fullest extent. And so we think about his sin, his broken, he was totally prodigal. Um, he took it to the farthest limit. But in actually, actually in Jesus' mind, it's really more about the prodigal nature of the father's love. Um, that it would come out of the house, that it would run, that it would put on a ring, that it would kiss, that it would get new sandals and a robe, kill the fatted calf, that it would throw a celebration. And in Nowen's book, Return of the Prodigal Son, he asked the reader, well, who are you most in the story? That's partly what we're meant to reflect on. That's how this kind of story is designed. Are, are, are you like the younger son mostly? Are you like the elder son? Or are you like the father? And he suggests that sometimes we are, we are actually kind of like all three. There's a, each one of them lives within our hearts. Sometimes we're the wayward son and we need to come to our senses because we know there is a loving father waiting to run to us when we return anywhere near home. Sometimes we're like the elder brother feeling pretty grieved that all our hard work hasn't been affirmed by the one whose affirmation we wanted the most. And sometimes we're actually the loving presence of the father or mother figure, if you wish. Sometimes we're the person who was meant to extend that love to others. And certainly the father in the story acts in, in ways like a mother as well as like a father. This is what was at the center of Jesus' paradigm of the kingdom. And this is actually who we're meant to emulate. We're, the heart of the father is who we're meant to. To become. Now and writes this. I'm going to read a brief excerpt from the book. Perhaps the most radical statement Jesus ever made is be compassionate as your father is compassionate. God's compassion is described by Jesus not simply to show me how willing God is to feel for me or to forgive me my sins and offer me new life and happiness but to invite me to become like God and to show the same compassion to others as he is showing to me. If the only meaning of the story were that people sin but God forgives, I could easily begin to think of my sins as a fine occasion for God to show me his forgiveness. There would be no real change in such an interpretation I would resign myself to my weakness and keep hoping that eventually God would close his eyes to them and let me come home whatever I did. Such sentimental romanticism is not the message of the Gospels. What I'm called to make true is that what, whether I am the younger or the elder son, I am the son of my compassionate father. I am the heir. No one says it more clearly than Paul when he writes, the Spirit himself joins with our spirit to bear witness that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, provided that we share his sufferings so that we also share his glory. Indeed, as son and heir, 
I am to become successor. I am destined to step into my father's place and to offer others the same compassion that he has offered me. The return to the father is ultimately the challenge to become the father. That is what was at the center. And Jesus had a word for this. The word was Abba. Um, and, and the word Abba literally means daddy. Our English translators of the Bible are too afraid to use that word, so they use the word father. Like in the Lord's Prayer, it says our father, but the word is daddy. Father is way too formal of an English term um, that for, for Abba. In fact, in the Hebrew imagination, Jewish people believed that the name of God was so holy they shouldn't even pronounce it. And they'd come up with other ways to sort of describe God and use the term the Lord. Jesus flips that whole thing on his head, on its head. When he says that this God who is so powerful, who created the universe, who's so holy other, we should not even pronounce his name, we should not even utter his name, has actually come to us as a benevolent father and invites us to call him our daddy. What an amazing gift and what a striking contradistinction um, to the Jewish people in how they related to God. He is like a daddy, powerful, yes, but warm, loving, merciful, compassionate, tender, restorative, never shaming, never giving you what you deserve. You notice in the parable that the word that described this father was the word compassion, the compassionate father. And the Greek word for that is the word splenknon. It's a really weird word. But it's also the word that is most used more than any other word to describe the emotional state of Jesus in the Gospels. He was filled with compassion. Jesus is that father and we're meant to find our life in him and we're meant to find our home in him. And so imagine yourself, what if you lived every day the way Jesus did with this as your reality, with this father or mother, if you will, such that you can come out of the snow or out of the pigsty or out of the workplace and you can come into a home of a daddy who has nothing but love. That term Abba, Jesus used 16 times in, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is only three and a half pages long and it takes 18 minutes to read out loud. In those 18 minutes, he used the word Abba 16 times. That was at the center of this kingdom and this reality. And we're invited uh, to see the world the same way. And so the question for us to ponder this week is what is at the center of our view of reality? Is it this Abba, this warm-hearted, tender parent? You know, the parable right before this one was about a woman who lost her coin, which was like a wedding ring, and she searched all, all over for it. So Jesus demonstrates the feminine as well as the masculine in his parables. But every moment of Jesus' life, he felt and knew an onslaught of tenderness from this God. He experienced a siege of compassion, and that was at the heart of reality. Let's pray. God, we thank you that 
you have invited us to see the world the way Jesus did. That's why you sent him in part to live on this earth for 33 years. That we might learn from him how to be like him. Because he is the fullest expression of you. We thank you that we are your children and your heirs, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done. Just welcome us home and help us to see your presence with us each and every day. Help us to become more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for ours. Amen.